welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. All right, good morning. Hello, everybody. Good. It's early. Oh, it's early. And it's sleepy. Am I right? I mean, when it's cloudy like this, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I want to welcome you. Good morning. This is our first ever 9 o'clock service. So you did it. You did it. You remembered. You did it. You did it. You're here. You're here. And look at how empty the back row is. Look at that. That's why we did this. Look at that. Look at that for some scallywags. Now, what's great is there's a Viola professor in the back row, which is always a great news. Um, you know, you'd think those guys would be front row people, but, I, you know, I don't know. Um, my name's Mike. I want to welcome you. If this is your first time with us, welcome to Vox. This is our 9 o'clock service, our first one. And, um, and so what we do... Uh, we opened in uh, April, uh, well, no, May officially, and uh, we had uh, two weeks of something we called friends and family services, and we're going to do that with our two services these next couple of weeks. And the big idea there is we're very much interested, something's blinking, right right under you, young lady. It's funny, your phone, your, your light's like on strobe right now, and it was awesome. Well, yeah, thank you. I feel it woke me up quite nicely. Um, and uh, so we're really interested in uh, the feedback of your friends and your family. And so there are a couple of uh, things you need to know. One, uh, our website is voxoc.com, where you can find out more about us. You can sign up for something called a New to Vox dinner coming up. Uh, also, we have an email address called feedback. Very sophisticated. Feedback at voxoc.com. I'm going to stand right here where there is literally nobody. Nobody right there. You're close. I like it. And you're close. I like it. But just, if anybody, if anybody in the next 20 minutes sits anywhere in here, could we just clap for them spontaneously? Just because I think it takes some courage, evidently, to sit right in this area. I'm not, I'm not sure. All right. Um, let's see here. So we've got that coming up. Uh, anything else I need to mention? Nah. All right, let's go to some questions. Now, um, we've been in a a teaching series on uh, one of the most famous verses in the uh, the Bible, John 3.16. And and, and what we do is we uh, allow, not allow, but encourage people to text in the questions they have about the things we're talking about. Because our assumption is that there are folks in here that aren't um, big fans of Jesus or big fans of church. And, uh, and, and that's who this whole thing is for. And so uh, we're, we're thrilled you're here. If you have questions about anything that you hear or sing or see, um, we want you to go ahead and text those in. And uh, we respond to them the following week. That's the number. So you can take a picture of that or enter that into your phone. That is Andy Laura's personal phone number. It's not really. Um, be great if you could spam him. But uh, we had some questions from last week. So if you weren't here last week, some of these questions are going to be like, well, what's that mean? They're connected to last week. So question number one, what happened to the dove and the pigeon? They make it out okay? <laughs> Remember we were talking about a, this, this thing called a blood oath, and you had five animals and you split them, but you didn't split the birds, but the birds still died. So no, they didn't make it out okay. They were, no. Next question. If by passing through a blood covenant twice was God taking on the full weight of the oath, isn't part of the concept negated by the fact that Abraham never could have made God pay up if God didn't keep his word? Well, sure. If admittedly nothing was on the line for God by way of potential human retribution, Didn't he effectively make the oath moot? Good use of the word moot. (laughs) He could effectively not follow through and never be held accountable. Sure. I mean, what what can we do to God? But the point of the story wasn't God taking on God's side, although that was initially Abraham's request. It was God taking on Abraham's side that was such the big deal. That God was promising that if Abraham and his descendants weren't flawless, that he would take the penalty upon himself 
for them. And that was the part that, was, that would have jumped out to the ancient audience. Next. I was, all caps, dazzled by today's message. One person. All right, next slide. No, 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 I'm kidding. I mean, that's all we need right there. I've never heard the crucifixion explained in light of the Abrahamic covenant like that. I was always told that Christ was fulfilling the law. That did not add up. You made it so amazingly clear. You are the greatest teacher I've ever heard. You're incredibly handsome. I can also see now how it is that our belief that includes us into the covenant. Next slide. That is what it means to be a child of Abraham, to believe God like he did. Yes, perfect. But for those who do not believe God, where are they in this? Is that the unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of which Christ speaks? You're a great texter, by the way. This is very articulate. There, you can't do emojis on this stuff. What's the emoji for blasphemy? I don't know. Against the Holy Spirit of which Christ speaks, the one sin that cannot be forgiven. And to take it a step further, when I struggled to believe God, am I in danger of being ousted from Abraham's descendants? Holy cow, let's take those backwards. If struggling to believe God ousted us from the covenant God made, there'd be no one in there except Jesus, right? I mean, the opposite of belief in the Bible or faith in the Bible isn't doubt. The opposite of, is sight, according to Paul. We live by faith, not by sight. What's faith? Paul says it's confidence in what is unseen, what is sight, trusting in only what you can see. So according to the scriptures, doubting, I mean, we have all kinds of Psalms that are doubting and all kinds of Old Testament passages that are doubting. And a guy that comes up to Jesus with a son that's having like convulsions and Jesus says, yeah, yeah I'll heal him. And, and, and the guy says, well, if you can, it'd be great if you could. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, are you kidding me? Of course I can. And the man has this great line. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy's kid. The boy's kid. The dad's kid. And so, so, no, you're not ousted if you struggle to believe in God. Nor is the unforgivable sin that Christ talks about um, unbelief. The unforgivable sin that Christ was talking about was the sin of that generation being so hardened against the purposes of God, they would rather attribute the miracles of Jesus to the adversary than to Jesus himself. That was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus was talking about. End of story. Okay? Now, unbelief, yes, if we can harden our hearts against God so much that we never end up yielding our hearts to him, but that's not unforgivable. That is simply the refused, the outright rejection of God's gracious offer to us. The hardening against his relentless pursuit of love. That's not something that's unforgivable. That's something that's eminently forgivable. Should we pause and surrender and stop running, right? So, so to me, these are phenomenal questions. That last one, I think. Does God forgive everything even when we continue to commit the same sin no matter how severe? Yes. Yes. God, the forgiveness of Jesus is past, present, future. It's so magnificent, so all-encompassing. Yes, everything's already been taken into account and forgiven. Yes, done, over. But the Bible does hint at this interesting possibility that there are many who claim to follow Jesus, but who don't really. And so who knows if, like, so let's say uh, I, I enter, engage in a marriage ceremony with my wife. We exchange rings, and a, 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 somebody declares us husband and wife. And let's say that I proceed to cheat on her multiple times a year. I abuse her. I forsake her. I embarrass her publicly, right? I'm t just awful to her. Am I married? Well, yes and no. Yes in a technical sense, but biblically... Marriage is fidelity. Faith is fidelity. So it doesn't matter. So we have people in our churches who pray a prayer when they're six years old and think somehow they're good. And then they have nothing to do with Jesus the rest of their lives. No, no. One of the very clear things the scriptures teach is that people who genuinely follow Jesus will begin to look like him. So 
for those who genuinely follow him, everything forgiven, of course. But part of the transformation of Jesus, and it's slow, and it's long, and it's bumpy, is that you begin to desire different things than you used to desire. Right? And so if, if you've been in church for 40 years and there's been zero change, you've got to wonder, okay, what's going on? So, so the answer is, yes, everything's forgiven, but the Bible does open up the possibility that there are people who call themselves followers of Jesus who are not in actuality. Make sense? Now that raises all sorts of other questions that we don't have time for. Go to Genesis 22. If you're here and that made zero sense, then you have a lot to text already. And we'd love to answer your questions next week. Now, um, we are, last week we began to look at a guy named Abraham. Father Abraham, if you were in church, has many sons. That's kind of chauvinist. Many sons said, Father Abraham, I am one of them and so are you. Now, how do, when little girls sing this, are they confused? I would imagine. So sons and daughters, Abraham is a big old family, is the idea. And the Bible, from uh, Genesis 12 on, is the outworking of a huge promise that God makes to this guy. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless whoever blesses you. I will curse whoever curses you. And, and all the nations will be blessed through you. So God was going to take this old guy... His wife was barren and couldn't have children. And he was going to bless them with descendants, and through those descendants was going to come a blessing. So, as we saw last week, God promises Abraham a child. And then delays that promise for at least a couple of decades. So whenever whenever somebody says to me, hey, God's timing is perfect, it's not. There's no way it's perfect. Not from my perspective. Maybe from his eternal glorious perspective, it's perfect, but it never feels perfect. So the whole story in the middle of Genesis is about Abraham going, okay, when do I get a kid? When do I get a kid? When do I get a kid? And the covenant we looked at last week was God saying, hey, Abraham, I'm your reward. And Abraham going, but I don't have a kid. So who cares? Now, to set up Genesis 22, we need to look at Genesis 18. This is a, an angelic visit to Abraham and Sarah, his wife. One of the angels said to them, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Abraham, of course, says, don't call me Shirley. And then the second thing, <laughs> now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind this angel, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was already past the age of childbearing. Now, earlier we realized she can't have kids, but even if she could have, it's now too late. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out, and my Lord Abraham is old, will I now have this pleasure of a child? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Next. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Does Abraham believe that? No. Because prior to this, Abraham's wife Sarah said, hey, I, I, I can't have kids, so here's my, here's my assistant, Hagar. Why don't you have a kid with her? Right, so they've already got a kid, but it's not the kid that God had promised. Next slide. So in Genesis 21, a year later, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac, which means laughter, because they were laughing at God. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him. I know you were curious about that. Abraham was what? A hundred years old. So Abraham is really the first father to, to shop for depends and diapers in the same Oh boy. All right, let's go to Genesis 22. Now, so the birth of Isaac, this son that was promised, is truly miraculous. They were too old. She was infertile. God provides in this crazy, crazy way, decades later, he keeps his promise. Now, Genesis 22 is a very famous episode where God commands Moses to sacrifice the child that he promised. 
All right, so let's, let's dive into this because it raises all sorts of interesting questions. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, when you hear the word test in English, we think of pass and fail. So testing means, I don't know how you're going to do. I'm curious to find out how you're going to do, so I'm going to test you. It's possible for you to fail the test. That's not the Hebrew concept of testing. The Hebrew concept of testing is arranging circumstances to reveal what's already in your heart. So God knows what you're like. It's arranging circumstances to show what's already in there. All right, that's what, it, that's what we're getting at when it means test. It already says that Abraham believed God. Abraham was a man of great faith. Now, to the Hebrew mind, faith isn't something internal. Faith is something that is seen. So now we're going to see his great faith. That's the idea. Make sense? Okay. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, now notice the way this is phrased. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, Moria. <laughs> now notice, keep that up there. Notice the fourfold repetition. This is so, in Hebrew, it's so interesting. Take your son once, your only son twice, whom you love, Isaac. Okay, this, that whole sentence is freighted with significance. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, it's interesting, there are some commentators that say that Abraham actually um, mistook God's instructions here. The word for sacrifice can also mean to ascend or to climb. And there are some ancient Jewish commentators that said God never commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, but rather to dedicate him at the top of this mountain. Regardless, Abraham understood this as a command to sacrifice Isaac and then burn him. <laughs> All right, so awesome. Next. Early the next morning, Abraham doesn't say a word. This is the guy that negotiated with God over Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This is, he, he just said, okay. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. On the third day is a key line. Abraham said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over to the mountain. We will worship, and then what? What's it say? Then we will come back. Now, a lot of folks think Abraham's just lying to his servants to kind of hide the plot. Because if he was really going to offer Isaac, there's no we coming back, correct? It's just Abraham coming back. So some think Abraham's lying. Others think that what Abraham is doing here is expressing faith. That even though God has made this weird decree, that God somehow will keep his word that Isaac will be the one that will create, through whom the creation of numerous descendants will happen. So, the story continues. The plot thickens. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it where? What's it say? Mm, I know it's early. On his son. So Isaac was carrying the wood of the sacrifice. And Abraham carried the fire and the knife. Who got the better deal of that one? Now, how old's Isaac here? See, some people think he's like seven or eight. Ancient Jewish commentators think he's in his 30s because of how old Sarah is when she dies. He's, he's old enough to carry wood up a, a hillside. He's old enough to have a conversation with his dad. So our, my guess is he's between 18 and, and 30. He's big enough to not go through with this, is the point. He could take the old man if he had to. 
As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. All right, I see the fire, which is the, 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 what Abraham was carrying. And, and I'm carrying the wood. But where is the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Now, Christians find this story to be mostly about Abraham. Abraham's faith and, and, and willingness to sacrifice the son of his promise. Jews find this story about Isaac, who allowed himself to be bound. It's just, so they, they actually call this story the Akedah, or Akedah, I don't know how you pronounce it in Hebrew, but it, it, it literally means the binding of Isaac. So we always talk about who's this God that would sacrifice? No, no, no. They find it compelling that it was Isaac who allowed himself to be bound and placed on this wood that he himself had carried. Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar. Then he reached out his hand uh, and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. I love that. Clearly you're here. God is calling out to you. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Now, again, in English it sounds like God's surprised. The word for know here means the word for see. Now I see. Now it is seen that you fear God. Now it is seen that you fear God. Because you've not withheld from me, and notice the repetition, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it on a, uh, as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, and then here's the title. This is what you did in the ancient world if God did something big, is you'd name it after that. The Lord will provide. On this day, and to this day, when this was written, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now keep that last sentence up there. Abraham called the place what? Why future? That's a future passive. God provided the ram, correct? So why not the Lord did provide? It's just interesting that Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. Future. Now, if you're a church kind of person. Oh, next slide. Who does this remind you of? All right, here's Isaac. Miraculous birth. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Sacrifice him after the third day. Great name for a band. Abraham says, we'll come back to you. So somehow he thought either Isaac was going to survive this or that Isaac would be raised from the dead. Isaac carried the wood of his sacrifice. Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. And the mountain was named, the Lord will provide. Who does this sound like? What's the right answer in church? Always. Oh, it's Jesus. Next slide. Miraculous birth. You want a miraculous birth. How about this one? Mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. How about a virgin birth, ladies and gentlemen? Next slide. Notice this. The father in the Gospels addresses Jesus the Son. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending and a dove alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. Does that sound familiar? With him I am well pleased. Next slide. Or another example, then a cloud appeared. This is his transfiguration and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. Next slide. 
Sacrifice your son? Yeah, Paul says, he, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So Jesus was seen as a sacrifice. Next. Remember, Abraham said after three days, we will come back. So three days is a huge part in the whole biblical story, right? Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. <laughs> Next. The author of Hebrews says this, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Next. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So we've got a, kind of a resurrection tie-in. Next. Isaac carried the wood of his own sacrifice. Shocking, Jesus did too, at least for some of it. Pilate handed him over, Jesus, to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He made his way to the place of the skull. Next slide. God himself will provide the lamb, Abraham said. John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next. Now, this is so interesting. What does Abraham name Mount Moriah? The Lord will provide, right? Now, guess what was built on that mountain later? Well, according to 2 Chronicles, a book with which we're all very familiar, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on what? Oh, that's interesting. So, the same place that Abraham named the Lord will provide was the place where Jerusalem was located and the temple that sacrificed the lambs was built. And thousands of years later, was there a particular Lamb of God that was slaughtered in that same region? Yeah. So God did provide the lamb. That's why it was future tense. Was it was hinting that there would come a final provision for the waywardness of people. Now, put the Isaac list back up, if you would. That list of like eight things. I know this is out of order. Oh, look at us. Go! We got our A game on today, kids. Still nobody. nobody. Not one person. Well done, sir. Well done, sir. Now, right, you see this list and you go, oh, well, isn't that interesting? How beautifully that lines up with the story of Jesus, correct? And for those of you that like are church people, you saw this coming. You're not shocked by this. So miraculous birth for Isaac and Jesus. Both are called your one and only son, or the only son whom I love. That's said of both of them. They're both offered in sacrifice. The third day is a significant thing. For Isaac and Abraham, the New Testament says Abraham actually believed in resurrection, and Jesus, of course, risen from the dead. Isaac carried the wood of his sacrifice. Jesus carried the wood of his sacrifice. Abraham said God himself will provide the lamb. Jesus was declared the lamb that was provided. The mountain was named the Lord will provide, and because of the sacrifice of Jesus, he did. Correct? Now, that was all intro. The Jews had a really interesting way of interpreting the Bible. They had lots of different ways of interpreting the Bible. One of the principles they used was something called the principle of first mention. And here's the idea. When a word or concept is first mentioned in the Bible, they saw that as very significant and setting the pattern for what that word would mean throughout the rest of the narrative. Okay? So the, the first time the word daughter is used, let's say, 
uh, that sets the pattern for daughtering and what a daughter is throughout the rest of the narrative. So the first time something is mentioned is very significant. Interestingly, the first time the word love is used is in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. So in Jewish thought, for centuries after, the predominant, most compelling example of love was a father's willingness to sacrifice his son and a son's willingness to be sacrificed by his father. That set the pattern for what love, the Hebrew word is ahava, would look like. All right, not, not that fathers and daughters, I mean, don't read it like that, but just read it because this story was so imprinted on Jewish consciousness. Why? It's the first mention of the word love. What was associated with love? A father's heartbroken willingness to obey God and a son's heartbroken willingness to submit to his father. Right? Right? So put up John 3.16. Why, when we get this great summary... It says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Why is that said? Simple. Because to the Jewish mind, attached to the word love, was the idea that the greatest love you could point to was a heartbroken, heartbroken father willing to sacrifice his son, and a heartbroken son willing to be sacrificed. That's what it was. So the declaration, for God so loved the world, well, the minute you use that word, one and only son was coming after. Does that make sense? See, it's not because God is male, and it's not because God, there's feminine imagery, imagery used all over the place of God. Absolutely. So why father and son? Is, is God a chauvinist? Is God not like women? I mean, what, what is this? Well, it's very simple. How do you explain the sacrifice of Jesus? Was it a vengeful God having to take his wrath out on somebody and a courageous son saying, okay, beat me instead of beating them? No. This very simply was the highest, clearest, most profound expression of love in Jewish culture that it could have ever been pulled from. And that is why in the rest of the New Testament, if you want to know, if you want proof that God is love, it's always, hello, it is always, it is always tied to the sacrifice of Jesus. We, God demonstrated his love for us in this. What was it? While we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. See, this whole thing was an act of love. This is not a vengeful father and this is not a horrified son. This is the heartbroken trinity resolving to do whatever it took to bring wayward human beings back into the kind of relationship God intended for them. That's the picture that's painted. And part of the reason why we do all this crazy parallel stuff is to remind us of a couple things. First, the, the Bible really is just one story. Very often we get this image of an Old Testament God who's mean and horrible and angry and a New Testament God who's really friendly and cool. And it's like, ah, I, I see why people think that. And there are lots of legitimate questions about, well, what's going on with the genocide in, in, uh, in Joshua and Deuteronomy? What's, what's going on with that? I get all of those. And those are great questions you can text and I can avoid. Um, no, those are great questions. But the Bible's a unified story. The gen when, when we were talking about, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. He, these are references that were generations before being pulled forward and used to explain what God has done in Christ. But then secondly, and most importantly, what you think God is like turns out to be really, really significant. If you think God is the cosmic judge waiting for you to screw up, testing you to see if you'll fail, Right? I always thought God was like, my dad was a police officer. He was a homicide detective. So I thought my dad, I thought God was like my dad. 
I thought God gave me a Ferrari, a straight road to drive it on with nobody on it, and a commandment to drive 55. And God was the police officer waiting with the gun to see if I drove 56. I would never have said it that way, but that's literally what I view God as. He gave us all this energy and all these passions and desires and all this stuff, and then he's just waiting for us to screw up. And if you believe that's what God is like, your relationship with that God is going to look very different than if you believe that God is the kind of God that rushes into a burning building even though you're the one that set it on fire. Or that God is the kind of God who waits for every prodigal to come home and welcomes them with a party before they even get an apology out. Or that God is the kind of God that leaves the 99 who are found to go and search for the one that is lost. Or that God is the kind of God who's going to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. Because the kingdom really is for everybody. What you think of what God is like turns out to be of incredible significance. I talked to many atheists who will describe the God they don't believe in, and you know the great line, well, I don't believe in that God either, <laughs> right? The God revealed in Jesus is so much different and more beautiful. So, uh, this morning we're going to do some singing, and then we'll celebrate the table together. Here's the, the, the standard rules apply. You can sit, you can stand, you can kneel, you can sleep, you can drink water, even though it says no food or beverage. Well, I didn't see it. I did not see that. I like that it's down low. I like that. That's, so, that's how I got through calculus. Let me just say that uh, hypothetically. <laughs> Izzy gets on me every now and again. She's like, you make these really profound spiritual points, and then you go into dork mode just instantly. <laughs> She's like... All right, so let's pray, and then we'll sing. And if you feel like singing, great. If you don't, great. But we always feel like one of the responses to some of the truth we hear is reflection. What does that mean for us? How do we wrestle through this? What questions does it raise? Um, for some of us, these songs are prayers that we end up praying in response to what we've heard. For others of us, this is just a time to think and to wrestle. So God... We are very grateful for the permission you give us to question, to doubt, to wonder. And, and we pray after something like this that you might continually invite us to reconfigure what it is that we think about you, to lay down all of the unworthy images that we have of you, and to embrace the picture we're given in Christ. And that that picture would compel us to joy, to surrender, not duty or obligation or guilt or fear, but rather the opening of ourselves up to whatever it is that you have for us. And so we do that now in a small way, just through the singing of our words. And so God, would you receive this in response to what it is that you've done? Amen. So um, thank you. So I want to introduce you to my friend Heather. Heather, say hello to everybody. Say hello, Heather. Oh, here she comes. Here she comes. Now, why, why it is that God chooses to give that much hair to some and not to others, that is a question I wrestle with. You would die of heat stroke with all I this I would hair. die of a heat stroke, but it'd be awesome. <laughs> um, so, uh, Heather, we just have a huge value for story, as you know. And um, we've asked Heather to share a bit of hers, so take it away. I've been committed to Vox from the beginning because we are truly seeking to be a place uh, that wants to know Jesus instead of creating this go. religion um, that just makes us comfortable. It's not easy to have Jesus flip your perspective upside down, so we also want to be a place that allows you to just be on that journey with your struggles, your doubts, and your questions. Um, I'm an only child, grew up here in Orange County, and for various reasons, I grew up feeling very lonely and questioning whether or not I was lovable. Mm. Uh, I did not grow up going to church or talking about God at all until about junior high. I was put in a Christian private school for a semester in sixth grade, and that sparked my curiosity about God. 
in high school, I attended a small church where I learned a lot about what my life should look like. Um, I accepted Jesus multiple times out of fear, and just in case all this stuff is true, um, <laughs> especially after watching the Left Behind series. Oh, my um, goodness. Oh. I, have, <laughs> I have no idea which prayer counted, but <laughs> here I am. Um, <laughs> I never really understood how transformation and healing actually takes place. Um, so when nothing about my life changed, things got harder and more confusing. Um, I started questioning you know, my faith. It seemed kind of pointless, and I wondered if it was even all true. Mm. Um, this made it easy to be in and out of church initially, and um, I started looking for my worth and satisfaction mostly in dating and material things. At 18, I left for Colorado on my own. Um, I stayed out there for almost 10 years. My faith did start to grow, um, and I started working through some stuff, but looking to relationships for um, to see if I was lovable still remained a huge issue, and you'll see that it failed me miserably. Um, I had a boyfriend in church who was sleeping with another leader in the church, and the head pastor did nothing when he found out. That pastor would then have an affair and leave his wife and kids. Another guy cheated. I gave up dating Christians for a little bit and the church for um, a short time. Shocking. That didn't work either. Um, after realizing that the world really offers no hope, I came back to the church and truly desired to find someone really pursuing Jesus. But I followed the next Christian guy to Georgia. Um, that ended when one night he drank too much and shoved me into a wall in front oh. of people at the church and his family, and literally everyone looked the other way and did nothing. So I quickly ended that, packed up what I could in my car, and made my way back to California, the place I never wanted to live again. Um, at that point, it felt like God was stripping me of everything. It was a long and humbling five years of rebuilding what felt like practically every area of my life. Um, I was so broken, but I gladly started releasing that idol of a relationship uh, to him. I'm truly thankful God allowed things to fail me over and over again and get me to a place where I was really desperate for him. This is also the same time about eight years ago that I first heard you teach. Um, oh, boy. But I can say that even after surrendering, I can't tell you that God made that area of my life um, happy or satisfying. Um, but I can say there is hope because he's given me everything I've needed along the way and truly has been enough. Um, during these last eight years, I dated a married man at church for three months without knowing. Uh, he was currently in seminary, a small group leader, and a pathological liar. Um, after finding out, he was allowed to keep leading his small group and immediately start dating the next girl within two months. Uh, the next guy dated and wanted to marry was hiding an addiction to lust and fantasizing, which unfortunately wasn't shocking to me because of how our culture views women and sex and portrays that all over our TVs, ads, movies, and social media. Unfortunately, I continue to see men in the church create gray areas um, and justify consuming this stuff just like everyone else does. Um, by now, I did not trust men to value women or God's word even the leaders in the church, and I started struggling a lot with feelings of rejection, anxiety, and being very angry about all of it. At the end of this relationship, a friend took me to the new Mars Hill Church here in Orange County. Mark Driscoll preached a strong message about protecting women and honoring them and teaching men to act like men, so you can see why that was really attractive to me. Um, I really, really desired a place to just heal and feel safe and um, see that maybe there's good men somewhere. Um, there were many things that that church did well, um, but as I started to serve more on the weekends and during the weekend offices, I started to see how controlling, manipulating, and dysfunctional the leadership was. Not everybody, but it really was the majority. As I saw people getting hurt, I tried to speak up um, and ask questions. Their response to that was to publicly call my character into question during small groups, isolate me, and use scripture to manipulate, manipulate me. If I didn't trust them, that meant I didn't trust the Holy Spirit, apparently. Um, so much, <laughs> yeah, so much for a safe environment and safe leadership. Um, I am thankful for the time I spent there, um, and God did call me to stick it out a little while, um, longer than I wanted to, but I really learned what it's like to pursue the character of Christ in me, even when other people are really messy and hurtful, even in the church. 
I then landed at EV Free and came with Mike to start Vox. Um, because eight years ago, when I first heard him teach, I felt like I was really hearing about the real Jesus. Um, it was radical love that left me hungry for more, and it was that Jesus that carried me through all the continued disappointment these last eight years. Um, Mike and other great teachers I've found continually point me back to what following Jesus actually means, and I need that. It's really hard being a white American from Orange County to want to look like a disciple of Jesus and be uncomfortable. Um, through nursing, too, I've developed a heart for marginalized groups in our society. I've spent days um, with people on locked, locked psych units hearing their stories. Um, and I've realized that it's a lot tougher for many people, other than myself out there in this world. We all have a story. We're all vulnerable. And the more we take time to actually hear people and know them, um, the harder it is to judge them. The more we let go of our pride, the more we see how much we have in common and that we all really need the healing love of Jesus. Um, Come on. <laughs> Jesus really is enough. Um, where'd I go? It's Jesus that drives me to stay connected within the body of believers, not the safety of church or men. Um, if your relationship with God and perspective are in the right place, you can survive when people fail you. It's really cool <laughs> to be able to love people out of that place because we have a very real enemy, but it's not each other. Um, I've learned to slow down. Francis Chan has pointed out that Jesus words, uses words like abiding in, delighting in, dwelling. Those things take time, so I cut a lot out of my life. Um, and spend time dwelling on God's faithfulness and promises, and that's really what allows my fears and anxieties to fade away. Um, I still struggle with anxiety at times, feeling of rejection, wondering if I'll ever be worth it to a man, and if I'm really lovable. I can withdraw and shut down quickly if I feel threatened, um, start trying to control my environment to protect myself. Um, I can get angry when I don't see Christian men standing for what's right instead of giving grace to them. I'm 36 now, still single, no large family in sight, but I truly am okay because at this point I've learned to really pursue the kingdom of God first, and I really don't want any other kind of marriage um, than one that makes that its priority too because I don't want that to change, and so I'm okay with waiting until that comes, and I truly am satisfied um, without that in my life at this point. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh. <laughs> Uh. Uh. I'm so sorry. That is awful. That is awful. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty amazing you're here. Pretty amazing you're here. I'm sure we'll screw it up, but hopefully not too bad. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so the reason we have, we have stories is... Um, I would bet there are a few of us here who get the whole rejection, not feeling lovable thing. And, um, and, and one of the points we've been trying to make the last couple of weeks is, is what it is about God's love and God's grace towards us individually. You want to stay for this or do you want to go? I can go. Okay. All right. See you. <laughs> we were just kind of like, can I leave now? And I don't blame you. I want to go too. Um, and so, so part of the reason why we take the bread and the cup every week is because we hang on to the things that we're supposed to forget, and we forget the things that we're supposed to remember. And so God is a God of props. God is a God who gives us physical reminders of spiritual reality because we're forgetful. We're forgetful people. Those, some of those wounds are so ingrained and so deep, they just take years and years and years to heal. And so whether it's a good day or a bad day, it's been a great week or a horrible week, we gather and we take the bread and the cup because there, there are some things that are unchanging and there are some things that are steadfast. And for some of us, it's a total act of faith to walk up and to, to do this, that, to dare to believe the good news is actually good. For others of us, it's always celebratory. For others of us, it's lament. But we know this, the table's open. That all of those who um, want to open themselves up to what God's doing, it doesn't matter if you've got the tiniest bit of faith or faith that can move mountains. Jesus receives you. Jesus blesses you. Jesus pursues you relentlessly. And Jesus isn't checking spiritual resumes as you come. We're all unworthy. This is the great leveler. Because there is no Republican or Democrat. There is no male or female. There is no... 
you know, white or black. There's just people that are in desperate need of rescue. So um, we're going to open up the tables. Gluten-free is where? Vegan, all over. Um, we also, next to, those, uh, next to those stations, there'll be somebody in um, a lanyard that has Vox on it or a Vox t-shirt, and they're there just to pray for you. If there's anything we can pray for, we would be honored to pray. That is such an act of surrender in itself, asking for someone to help carry a burden that you've got. Um, if you choose to financially participate in worship, um, we have participation boxes near the doors if that's something that is meaningful to you. Um, and then lastly, we're going to sing some more. So again, if you want to stand, sit, sing, or not sing, it's just fine. So let me pray, and then we'll open up the table together. So God, thank you for Heather and for the reminder that when a group of, of screw-ups get together, there's just going to be hurt, and there's going to be damage. And, and God, we lament how much the church has polluted culture in your name. And I'm part of that. God, we're part of that. And we so desperately want to be a community that embodies the grace and the truth of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. And so we do this in obedience. You invite us to come. And so we come and we take the bread and we take the cup, not only to remember what Jesus has done, the God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. But we do it in anticipation of your continued work in us, that you never will give up on us. And we surrender and open ourselves up to that work. And so, God, would you move among us to shape us and form us? And, and for those who've been deeply hurt by the church, I pray your healing over them. Whether that's days or months or years from now, that they... they would come to the place where they could forgive those who've hurt them deeply. And so God, in that spirit, we come and we worship and we bless your name. Amen and amen. I'm thinking someday I'm just not going to show up at the end. And so you have to talk. It's going to be awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, would you stand? You made it. You made it. You got the rest of the day. You got it. Okay. Couple of things as you go. Number one, um, we'd love your thoughts, feedback at voxoc.com. Secondly, uh, if you are uh, the inviting type, we have invitations out on the tables for you. Uh, there are also cards if you want to give us uh, your information so we can add you to our distribution list. We can do that. Um, and I think that's it. We have a new Devox dinner coming up, so sign up for that. Let me, uh, let me just declare a blessing over us as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Amen and amen. Have a great week. See you later. Thank you, four of you, for clapping at the end. It was overwhelming. It was, I go into the 11 o'clock. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox community at voxoc.com slash participate.